listening to the Rosenfeld Review. We're, we're just the, those proverbial blind men trying to figure out the elephant. I'm your host, Lou Rosenfeld, and I'm here with my friend, Natalie Hansen. Hey, Natalie. Hey, great good to be to here. Have you. Yeah. Um, Natalie and I um, have had this kind of weird relationship in that we've been working <laughs> together for years. Uh, you were the scribe at the very first conference uh, that Rosenfeld Media produced back in, in 2015, and we called it Enterprise UX, and then it became Enterprise Experience, and we've been doing it every year, and then you were our scribe for the, the uh, de- first few uh, Design Ops Summits, and then, you know, here I knew you, and I knew I worked with you, and you were like this fixture in my conference life, but I didn't really know you because we hadn't really worked on a project together. And I sort of had this like cloudy picture of Natalie Hansen. And then it, we decided to launch a new conference and community to go along with it, the Advancing Research Conference and Community. And Natalie has been the, uh, the lead curator of that conference, which is coming up March 10th through 12th virtually. Uh, and, um, that was like this great opportunity over this last year of working more closely, two years really, uh, on the conference. We're coming up on our second year to really kind of dig into to your experience, your your knowledge of research uh, and, and your vision. So that's a really long and gratuitous uh, uh, buildup <laughs> to your intro. Uh, so uh, Natalie is a principal and, and partner at ZS, management consulting firm. Uh, which, uh, if I understand it, is A, growing by leaps and bounds, and B, is especially busy in the healthcare sector. And those two things, I'm sure, go together. Uh, And she'll tell us a little bit about that work. Uh, Natalie has a master's in whole systems design, which is a really interesting topic. Maybe we can touch on that. And uh, another master's and a PhD in anthropology. And you already may know her uh, as the founder of Anthro Design, an online community focused on the use of ethnographic methods in the business setting. So that's Natalie. Uh, you're, you're doing this really interesting work. You come out of anthropology. Now, I knew you were involved in anthro design as a founder and, and EPIC, the EPIC conference and community as well. Uh, can you give me a sense of, like, what was that all born of? How did you decide to start this new community and all the things that grew out of it, were you, were you like me? When I do these things, I'm usually frustrated and pissed off about something. Or were you a little more <laughs> enlightened and, and kind-hearted? Uh, um, you know, I was I was um, in the midst of my PhD at the time, and uh, it was a pretty academic program, and it was becoming increasingly clear that I was not going to end up in academia. And, uh, Can I ask and why, looking... actually? Because sure. I'm one yeah, of those people, too, you know. I, yeah. I crapped out on my PhD, too. It was the pace. It was just, um, it was just not varied and fast enough for me. I, I, got, I was restless. I was, and, you know, I had spent, you know, spent most of my career in, in different kind of technical jobs. And, in, in so, you know, later I ended up in, in software specifically. And I think just the pace. Um, of software development and the pace of consulting work is really more suits my sort of energy level. Mm -hmm. I just felt like things didn't change fast enough in academia. 
but I, but I realized that I was, I needed to find other anthropologists that were doing the kind of work that I wanted to be doing. And so I started to look for, uh, for, and as part of my, uh, preparing for my comprehensive exams for my master's degree, I had to, you know, build a body of literature that I was going to reference in my dissertation. So I started looking for these practicing anthropologists and, and started to find places like sort of, if you look at the genesis of this, of this, uh, field of ethnographers working in business, the team at Xerox Park under Lucy Suchman. Mm-hmm. And then later there was the Institute for Research on Learning in San Francisco, which is the origin of the, the term communities of practice originated from that work at the IRL. And there were people there like Giddy Jordan and Melissa Sefkin and, and others who um, really shaped how we bring ethnographic methods into the business setting. So I started to network with them and see, you know, what are their careers like? What, what kinds of jobs do they have? What kind of job might I have? And, um, and uh, so put the list, it was a listserv at the time. It's also now a Slack community, but it was at the time it was just a listserv. And it started to organize in-person gatherings at major anthropology conferences. And it blossomed into this wonderful community. You know, it was small at first, but small, relatively speaking. We would have a dinner at one of these conferences where there would be 20, 25 people, all of whom were doing similar work. And none of us had known each other, but we met through this sort of um, burgeoning network. So in the beginning, I think most of the, like the first 90 or 100 people were all anthropologists, most of them PhDs most of them sort of loosely connected. And um, then it really just grew, exploded from there. And and it's been now active for the past, uh, I think we're coming up on the 20 year anniversary. So 18, 20 years, something like that. There there wasn't a a community of much substance in anthropology or business facing anthropology. It was the business piece. So there's a little bit of a split in the world of anthropology between the academics, pure academics and those doing there's, there's three there's there are three distinctions. One is academic, pure academic. One is applied. So people that are, you know, doing work in academia, but sort of touching on business problems. And then there's true practitioners who are making their living in business. And it was really those practitioners that, you know, when you're deep in your own business problems and your own business community, you don't necessarily get time to build those relationships and find other people like you. Um, so that was the, for me, it was really initially about making those connections. And, and why I called it anthro design was because I was working full time while I was doing my PhD and I was building my first UX team it was before really was, you know, really before UX was a, a word. Um, but when I looked around at what I needed to do, I had done my first ethnographic work. What did I need? I needed a designer because I had all these ideas, but I didn't have a way to bring them to life. Right. It was a lot of it was very intellectual. And, um, and the designer was the one that made it real. And I started to really look at and appreciate how those two fields complemented each other. So the idea, origin of answer design is really about recognizing that value of interdisciplinary collaboration. First with designers and anthropologists, and now of course with engineers and data scientists and all of the other teams we need to work with in order to do our best work. It's also interesting that um, y- you sound like you in order to build a team for your your work setting, you needed to build a community first. And that's kind of I a, did. like... That's a little bit my personal style, right? So I don't know if you've ever done the Gallup Strength Finders, if you're familiar with that, that survey instrument. It's a pretty cool. It's, focused, it's a grounded in positive psychology, and it basically says, you know, if you know what you're good at or what your strengths are, you can bring those things to work. So 
my, my strength finders, my number one is input. And it makes sense um, to me as a researcher that input was, so I'm driven by having data, right? And doing that reasoning based on having a body of data. So for me, figuring out what the career opportunities were, what, you know, what problems needed to be solved, what my future might look like. I, I did what, cause I'm a researcher. That's what I did. I went and did a body of research. I built a social network and used that to gain understanding. And it's funny, you know, those first conferences that I, where I proposed panels and topics like back in 2003, 2004, I was the convener of those panels, but I didn't speak because I didn't have anything to say. I didn't even know what, what or so you what thought, those, you know, yeah, well, at the time I didn't, I really didn't. I was still in school and I, I wasn't doing that kind of work. I was, I was, you know, doing tech support, right. I was working in an IT group doing tech support. Um, and so, uh, I just convene at first I was just a convener until I got to the point where I had my own stories to share. So interesting. Cause I feel like, uh, for me, it's been the opposite. I, I started knowing something and I've, or I've regressed to conven to convener. Uh, anyway, um, <laughs> but did you find, uh, uh, so first of all, the, the conference you're talking about where you were convening is Epic, right? Or is that a different conference um, no, at that these point? Were, this was pre-Epic, right? So um, Anthro Design was founded, I have to go back and look at the dates. It's in this blog post that we'll link, link to the, mm -hmm. to the podcast, but you know, just, order of magnitude, I think Anthro Design was founded in 2002 and Epic in 2004 or something like that. They were a couple of years apart. So in those in-between years, it was just anthropology conferences, the American Anthropology Association meetings, the Society for Applied Anthropology. And, um, and we would start to put panels together as we got to know each other about things we had in common to learn from each other and to share ideas. And, and then Epic, the really sort of tremendous value of Epic, which is a community in its own right now, but the real thing at the time was there was no published body of work about mm -hmm. what we were doing. So if you wanted to come out of a PhD program and become a practicing anthropologist in business, there was no material to say, how do you do that? What do those jobs look like? What kinds of problems do you solve? You know, none of that really existed. There's very, very little, some, a little bit of it through the American Anthropology Association, but, but not much. And so the fantastic thing about Epic, double-blind, peer-reviewed, published mm -hmm. proceedings, was that it started to create, and it has over the past, you know, close to 20 years, built a body of work that now the future generations of, of whether designers or researchers of various uh, flavors can, can learn from that and not reinvent the wheel. So uh, I'm, I'm curious about, you know, the, your, how you felt about Anthro Design and, and Epic back then when you were helping uh, or actually starting them uh, um, or participating in that versus how you feel now. So, uh, you know, your arc and the community's arc, do they stay aligned over many years or is there a point where you feel or felt like, I'm not sure this is really my home anymore? Mm -hmm. So I will say that, you know, there is, there is a special connection, especially for those people that I met in person at the beginning, right? There's, I would, you know, less than a hundred of them that I had dinner with. You know, I, I was in a job at that point where I was traveling all the time, all over the country and, and all over Europe. And um, so I was having dinner, you know, with people and, and getting, building connections. And so uh, there's definitely that feeling of having a tribe, you know, and, and um, it, it felt really good. 
Um, but it is true that my, my career has changed a lot and I do answer design still as a labor of love, but more and more that's being turned over to Epic, which is kind of a longstanding, you know, nonprofit organization mm-hmm. that has staying power. The way it was designed by Tracy Lovejoy and Ken Anderson was to build it as a, my answer design is, a, is dependent on me in its current form, but Epic has a governing body. It has, um, you know, bylaws, it has a treasurer, it has all those things that give it staying power. And so I think uh, given the close connection between the two, Answer Design will become more and more uh, the responsibility of, of Epic over time. And that's their main communication channel is through that list because that's where the interested folks are. But for me personally, you know, I spent the early part of my career after I finished my PhD in anthropology as a researcher. So I, I, ha- I hired a designer and I was the researcher. We were a team of two. And, um, and then over time I hired a, the next hire for me was a human factors engineer because I felt like my research chops were pretty limited, right? Mm-hmm. I only learned one method in college, in, in my PhD program and I, I needed others, usability testing, surveys, all that kind of stuff. So I hired human factors person and an information architect. So that's the beginning. There were four of us and that was, we each did everything. We all did everything. But, you know, pretty quickly that team grew, um, you know, over the course of those years, it quickly became a team of almost 20 people working on board level projects. I was at SAP at the time, which mm-hmm. is a big software company. And and so I was in management. Like I, I did research for the first year, you know, I did one or two projects where I was really in charge. And very quickly, because I had been in the business world and I had been in this operations management role while I was doing my PhD. So I was kind of already like a mid-level executive and a director at a Fortune 500, Fortune 100 company. Um, I was quickly pulled out of research and and I'd have team, you know, teams would be running research projects and I'd say, hey, bring me in for the analysis and synthesis. I want to be in the data with you. I want to learn with you. I want to help you tell that story to the executives. But it, it happened pretty fast. Um, and so as much as I still identify as an anthropologist and as a researcher, I think, you know, as I look about my career arc now, so I manage a team that's 120 people, it'll probably be more over 150 by the end of this year, um, just not in the details of any kind, right? And so as much as I, as much as I love the research, it's not something I can be in every day every, anymore. So it sounds like you've come to or came to a bit of a crossroads in your career and Uh, that's probably a good time to take a, a quick break. You're listening to the Rosenfeld Review. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you want more, not only do we have a whole bunch of podcasts in our archive, but we have something that's very current, very alive, and very engaging for groups. And that is our communities. Rosenfeld Media runs a variety of communities that meet on a monthly basis for video conferences on a variety of topics near and dear to UX people, ranging from enterprise experience to advancing research to design and research operations. I want to encourage you to join one of our communities. Again, it is free by going to rosenfeldmedia.com communities. Not only will you get a monthly video conference that you can listen in on and participate in, ask questions and so forth. We'll give you access to the recordings. And uh, for some of those communities, we're talking about dozens of recordings with really interesting presenters and facilitators. You'll also get a newsletter. You'll get access to an advice columnist. Yes, we actually are providing advice columnists for each community. And finally, if you're interested in our conferences, 
our communities correspond to our conferences. So you will be the first to know when programs, uh, when programs go live, uh, when tickets go on sale, and by the way, most of our conferences sell out, and other good things about our conferences, such as uh, when these scholarship applications open up. So go to rosenfeldmedia.com communities. You're gonna find something that's free, something that's interesting, and it's a great opportunity to find your tribe as well. We'll see you there. Hi, you're listening to the Rosenfeld Review. I'm your host, Lou Rosenfeld. We're here with anthropologist Natalie Hansen. Uh, right before the break, we had kind of reached this point in your career arc where things were shifting from being a researcher and, and a practitioner, and you, you were starting to have to build out a team beyond research, and but you were still the researcher, and then you got to a point where you had to really scale up research, and, and it sounds like really more broad UX teams and you moved into more of a senior leadership role in a very large mm -hmm. organization. Um, talk a little bit about how that transition has been for you and, and what does research mean when you are, you know, you're actually sitting at the table? Yeah. I, I mean, for me, um, I, I, the work is definitely grounded. Everything that we do is grounded in human insights. Not, not always, you know, for sure, not always ethnographic methods. It's not always practical, not even usability testing. Sometimes it's a question of sitting with a technical support team and understanding what calls are coming in. Sometimes it's working with data scientists to understand how they've accounted for human behavior in their algorithms. We do a lot of collaboration with market research. We do a lot of, especially on the consulting side mm -hmm. of our work, um, because they have different kinds of relationships and connections and access to stakeholders and our clients than, than we do. Um, so, um, you know, I think for me, what's exciting, so I've built a set of adjacent teams over time. It started with just a, a UX team in a product organization, and then it was a UX team in consulting, and then it was a front-end development team, right? And so those are, they're related, and they, they never felt like, um, yeah, they took me out of the day-to-day -day work of research, but something like front-end engineering, for me, it's important because you can ensure that if those engineers report to you, you get the pixel perfection that you want out of your mock-ups, right? So it's a level of controlling the life cycle of the things that you're building, which I think is really a cool place to be. Um, and, and I think for me also, you know, it's funny, I don't, I don't think of myself as being particularly ambitious, but I am ambitious about the kinds of problems I want to solve. And I think the more people you have and the more variety of people you have under your direction, the more complex problems you can tackle, right? You can think about, instead of thinking about a feature set or what to put in the next epic in the product backlog or something like that, you're thinking about portfolio level strategy, mm -hmm. product portfolio strategy. You're thinking about how to use research to drive organizational transformation or better patient outcomes, right? right? Really big, big ticket items. And um, that to me is, is what's really exciting about what I'm doing now is the kinds of problems that we can solve if we keep, you know, human insight at the center of the work that we do. Do you find that your, your background as a researcher is also helping you as a leader and manager of people? It helps me navigate organizational culture, both my own culture and the culture of our clients. Um, I think uh, we've talked before about Christian Madsberg's uh, work and um, his, the first book that he wrote, uh, you know, he talked about the, 
um, important that we, you should spend as much time understanding your client's culture as you do understand the market that they're trying to serve because the client culture is the thing that determines whether those insights will be used and absorbed and used to change how the client goes to market, right? If you don't understand what makes things tick inside the client, then you won't be able to, um, you won't be able, those insights will, will collect us. Right. So for, I think that's probably the most important thing is really sort of that lens of organizational culture. How do our clients make decisions? How is, how is, you know, power dynamics? But how do you, how do you keep that, um, that sort of arm's length step back perspective on your own organization uh, as you observe it? You're part of it. Does that really muddle the, the ability to observe? Um, you know that's interesting. So in in anthropology, I think there's sort of an acknowledgement that it is that is a, that is a wicked problem of its own, um, and that's why the method is called participant observation, because you're an observer, but you're inherently by being there, you affect the outcomes, right? And so I think it's just kind of something you think and reflect and adapt to from the beginning. Is just by being present, you you you. You're, you're implicated, right, in the change and, and um, your own choices. Um, you have agency, and that agency has an impact. And I think that's one of those places, I think, where you look at in anthropology, this sort of division between the academics and the applied and the practitioners is the practitioners have just said, we're here to make the, the business change. We're not going to apologize for that or pretend. And I think in some of the other parts of anthropology, there's this desire to observe and not transform. But I think just by the nature of observing, you are making change. I, I just have this picture of uh, people in your position struggling to not have like an out-of-body experience observing themselves inside their organizations <laughs> as they change their organizations. Uh, uh, I, imagine. I mean, some of the best advice that I got, so I, for me, I had, um, you know, I think typical of people of my generation, um, I've only had a couple of really big career moves and I spent almost 15 years at SAP and, um, and then I uh, left to go to ZS and those companies are, could not be more different culturally. And the beginning was really, really hard, right? SAP is German and, and Israeli. So it's very uh, command and control, very hierarchical, very orderly, you know, um, and um, and ZS is very different. It's a it's a company that has grown organically by partners coming up with great ideas and building new service lines and new new areas of the business, new new client relationships, and uh, the way decisions get made is very organic, organic and, and lateral. And so I struggled tremendously at the beginning to make that change. And then I had a um, a friend, an anthropologist in my network, say to me, "You need to treat this as a." participate as an exercise in observation and step back and look at ZS as a culture to be analyzed so that you can figure out how to operate within it. And that was sort of what turned the key for me. I was like, oh, if I treat this as a research exercise, I'm going to be fine. Uh, that's amazing that, that, you know, you can have that. I mean, it's so complicated, that impartiality and ability to participate at the same time. Now, let, let's take this to Advancing Research, the conference. Yes, yeah. this is the one yeah. that Natalie is the lead curator of this year. Uh, so yeah. I have to plug it one more time and say it's taking place uh, March 10th through 12th, virtually. Uh, first year, yeah. last year, sold out and uh, virtual. I guess they don't really sell out, but uh, we're, we're, we're certainly uh, expecting a great crowd. Um, what are the, uh, I mean, so at this 
nexus where you've become a, a leader and a manager and a, a partner in a large organization. So you have that seat at the table. What does it mean to actually advance research for you? Yeah. And how is that translated yeah. into the program of the conference? Yeah, well, as you know, we did, and, and I think you communicate this pretty clearly, but we did a bunch of research to inform the program design. And um, and then that was sort of reinforced by the responses that came back on the call for papers. And, and out of that kind of emerged three areas of interest. And, and the program's targeted at mid-level researchers, you know, five people with five, not that it's not beneficial at all levels, but particularly, I think, for people with five to eight years of experience, for example. And um, so, you know, these ideas of who are we as people, you know, what makes us tick? How do we grow ourselves as practitioners and as people? And then the practice itself, you know, how is the field of research evolving in a way that we need to be um, cognizant of and prepared for? And then the last one for me, which is the one I'm most passionate about, is, is this idea about organizational transformation and saying, how do we use research as a vehicle and our role as researchers as a vehicle for organizational transformation? And when I look at the submissions and the things that came in, I think most researchers are focused on how do they develop themselves as people and as practitioners? How do they develop teams? How do they maybe get into some leadership roles? But I would say the area that I think needs, if we're going to get to this kind of idea of advancing research, the area that really needs the most developed is this idea of organizational transformation. How do we talk to executives? How do we get that seat at the table? How do we make sure that we're solving um, big, big problems, right? Not just how to get the right feature in the right product and get the product out the door on time of high quality, but really, you know, macro, macro questions. And I think if I think about, you know, if I have people in my organization that are at eight years in their career, they should be getting into management and leadership roles and increasing responsibility. And I don't want them just looking into the details of research. I want them looking up and out about what are, you know, what is what they're doing? How does it make meaningful change? So it's not a conference. Yeah, it's not a conference to go to if you want to learn how to do uh, a particular method better. Uh, we're right. really stepping back sure. from from that. Um, if you yeah. were to uh, leap ahead in your time machine to advancing research uh, 2026, um, mm-hmm. do you think the the, the those themes, uh, the program themes would be very different or would it just be maybe uh, a little bit more oriented toward things like uh, organizational transformation? I mean, I hope it changes because we're going to have a cohort of researchers that are growing and maturing and becoming leaders. And um, there will be still those more junior researchers that are three to five years into their career that still want to learn how to do usability testing or customer satisfaction surveys. And I think there's, there are places for them to do that. But if I had to say the two things that I think are most important and, and near and dear to me, uh, one of them is the, the concept of interdisciplinary collaboration, which, you know, since the founding of Anthro Design has always been a passion for me. At the time, it was focused on anthropology and design. Um, we know about the importance of collaborating with product managers if you're in a product organization. But now this whole wave of, you know, how do I work with data scientists? How do I work with market researchers? How do I learn enough about AI and ML so I can meaningfully contribute um, both research and design into that practice? Um, and I, I, I think that um, my, my aspiration would be that the conference presenters came from those varied fields, that it wasn't just I don't want to say just because I think it's a great program, 
designers or design researchers or social scientists talking to each other at this conference, but that it's truly an interdisciplinary dialogue about how do we elevate and learn from each other and, and take the best of each of these disciplines to, to make more sophisticated human insights than we can make today. Um, and then, of course, yes, organizational transformation. Again, not just solving the feature set problem or the immediate um, um, you know, research question, but really saying, what's the, what's, what's the bigger problem? What's the bigger thing we're solving for here? You know, our, you know, in our case, for example, when we do work in digital health, it's improving the lives of patients. You know, what, what things that have meaning, right. And not, not just turning the crank on an agile development process, but really looking for how do we have meaning and how do we connect human insights to, to get to those kind of meaningful change. Well, we want to make it a social level or institutional level. I mean, those two themes you mentioned arguably are, are really interdependent. I mean, to have organizational transformation, you probably really need to have interdisciplinary collaboration. Yes. Yes. Yeah, I remember in the one of the first um, Enterprise UX conferences, and you know, at that point, I'd already been in enter- many enterprise, like in in business roles. I wasn't there as a UX person at first; I was there as a business person. And there was this one presentation. I don't remember who it was now. It was quite a few years ago, but it was like this sort of idea: like you need to be friends with IT and HR and legal. And I was thinking that is so. To me, that was so obvious, right? But for people that were just coming into enterprise roles and, and enterprise engagement models, it was, it was novel. Right. Um, and so I, you know, I hoping that we'll look back in five years from now as what, at what we're doing in the same way and saying, Oh, that was so, that was so basic. And what we're doing now is so much more advanced than what we were doing then. Do you remember Hopefully when we'll we, do you remember when years. we didn't know how to talk to developers? <laughs> that was so yeah. funny. So yeah. quaint. Yeah. Natalie, um, we have to wrap up, but before we do, I want to ask you, um, if you have a, a little gift for our listeners, something you think they should know yeah. about. Yeah, well, just based on my history and my bent, you know, it's it's ethnographic ethnographic methods for me is my just my has always historically been my preferred method. I think it's the most strategic uh, in the sense that because of the richness of, of what you learn and and the nature of the questions that you ask when you're doing ethnographic research. And so for me, the epic. Uh, conference and, and online community, and then Anthro Design. So Anthro Design is focused exclusively on ethnographic methods. It's it's a wide variety. It's researchers and designers, and even engineers that are involved there. But that's a an active community, both a listserv and a Slack that I think people would enjoy being a part of if if they're interested in that method. We'll make sure we have the link uh, in the description. And uh, wonderful. I knew it'd be good to have a little bit of dedicated one-on-one time, so I could really finally get to know yeah. who you are. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure getting to connect. Natalie, it's always a pleasure. Been enjoying working with you for years now, especially these last couple of years on advancing research. I'll put my last plug in for it. It takes place March 10th through 12th. A fantastic program brought to you by our curators, Steve Portugal, Jamaica Burge, and our lead curator here, Natalie Hansen. And if you want to know more about Natalie, follow her on Twitter at NDHAnthro. NDH Anthro, and I didn't know you were on Instagram, Fairy Wigs, F-A-E-R-I-E-W-I-G-S. Fairy, like spelled the old school way. All right, Natalie. Oh, and NatalieHanson.com, of course. So, Natalie, it was fantastic talking with you, and we'll see you in March. Likewise. Take care.
Thanks for listening to the Rosenfeld Review brought to you by Rosenfeld Media. If you like our show, please subscribe and review it on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast platform. I'd love it if you tell a friend to have a listen and check out our website for over 100 podcasts with other interesting people. You'll find them all at rosenfeldreview.com.